This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. credibility in which zoom callers are analyzed based on their <laughs> bookcase background i have heinous bookcase credibility at the moment because i'm in a child's bedroom so <laughs> there are a lot that's of... your bedroom that's not a child's bedroom <laughs> that's a child's bedroom come on but i think you've got decent bookcase credibility from what i can see andy are your books locked away andy they look like they're in a glass case or something is that is that no they're not in a glass case but you are you are perceptive because uh those shelves came with doors but i just didn't use the doors right so the well, shelving you, units you took, that's the, you an took aesthetic, the doors off. that's an aesthetic choice you made <laughs> I didn't ask you here to judge me, Lalwani, but, but thanks. Have you ordered them alphabetically? That's frowned upon, I think, in bookcase credibility. No. Uh, I, working in a bookshop for many years cured me of that. I keep, the, I keep authors together. Oh, that's interesting. Mostly. I don't do anything more formal than that, which means I do spend a lot of time not quite knowing. I mean, every room in the house has got books in it, so I don't, I don't quite know where things are half the time. What about you? Never really talked about this. What do you? I mean, I've been to your house, John. I know you, you've got books everywhere and not in any particular order, have you? Uh, no, only because I'm too lazy to do that, and also because I don't know, it, it, like you, bookshops. And what I can't, I can't ever quite get my head around other people who color code their bookshelves. Like Nicholas Royal, he's mad about, it, isn't he? His pictures on Twitter of like one room's all green, one room's all blue. I mean, I, you know, I wouldn't judge, but it must make it quite difficult to find things. <laughs> Even more difficult than my, <laughs> than my, I, I always know where books are. That's one thing. But I just, sometimes it takes ages because there, there are too many. I haven't got enough bookshelves. Do you ever I, worry that the bookcase will be gazed upon by visitors? Um... Um, I don't worry about that. I've got one downstairs that I've Le- very... less less so at the moment. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's not such a big issue. But I've got one. I've got one to use the the c word. I've got one curated, definitely bookshelf downstairs ah. where I've got. Which I call the because the boys for some reason they they stuck a couple of green men <laughs> fig, figures on there, sort of dad's old country weirdo crap shelf, which is full of. <laughs> Full of books. That's a name for a TV show, isn't it? <laughs> full, of, full of books, which I haven't talked about this on the podcast with 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 uh, with uh, <laughs> books like this on it, which I have uh, to say, mm. is it? witchcraft, secret societies of rural England, the magic of toad men, plough witches, mummers, and bones men. Bones men. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, that, I've got a lot of that kind of stuff. And, and how do our guests uh, deal yeah. with their books? Nikita, your 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 so-called child, I see, is has a fairly <laughs> lackadaisical approach to. That's right. There's no shelving. The child has put nail polish at the front of the books. 
I put some authors together, but they're not alphabetical. And I definitely curate the bookshelves as a kind of pastime. So I will just walk past a bookshelf and take one off that's not really visible and place it in a visible. But I don't really know who's gazing. That's the existential question around the bookshelf. I just yeah. keep putting, I, I keep dragging books out and putting them on show, but I don't know who it's for. <laughs> so you, yeah. So is it? Let, let's let's uh, let's return to your childhood. No, is that because you want to? Do you like what we would have called in the bookshop a face out? Do you want like a face out to just bury up Possibly. a bit for your day to day existence, or is your brain thinking, "Wow, it would be amazing if if I don't know." Uh, Jeanette Winterson called in. <laughs> I think uh, it's both. Both things are going on. If I'm, I feel lockdown provokes a kind of honesty. I try to answer the question as honestly as possible now. Great. Um, That's interesting. That's I like that. So, I would I would dream of a high profile, high high status gazer, gazing person to come in, but also I am trying to create an aesthetically pleasing. Uh, bookshelf day to day you're right I hadn't thought about that before I'm doing both because a lot of the time a high stakes gazing person doesn't enter the room <laughs> well you, you know what they say file your books like nobody's watching <laughs> yeah <laughs> we did a we did some bullshit research back in the day at Waterstones about this and and it, unsurprisingly I think books came up ahead of clothes as um the things that people felt most spoke of their, their true selves, which I've always thought that's one of those things that people obviously say in research things, you know, to try and make themselves look cleverer and more interesting and deeper. Um, you know, like that great quote of Kafka is, you know, a book is an axe that breaks the frozen sea within us. Well, sometimes, Franz. Yeah. I mean, sometimes yeah. it's just a... Merry, Merry it's Christmas. Just a, it's just, yeah, it's just a... <laughs> It's just something entertaining we take on holiday. Surely that's all right. Surely. And Matt, but yeah, Matt, I notice you are in a room with uh, yeah. dead media behind you. Is that dead media? Yeah, I know it is dead. Well, there's a mixture. There's some. Well, there's various types of different dead media, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah. No. So our filing system, which our family filing system, which involves everything, uh, from you know vinyl to CDs to DVDs to books to whatever eight track. Um, is that uh, so? Leslie and the the children very carefully put everything into alphabetical order when we moved house. Well, as soon as we had one room that was just full of A to D, we realised how much rubbish there was at the beginning of the <laughs> alphabet. Uh, no offence to writers who were at the beginning of the alphabet. <laughs> <laughs> the the recklessness of what you just said. Well done. <laughs> So we had to mix it up a bit. So, so yeah, it's a bit like Nikita said. It's kind of a curated thing. Um, but then I, you know, I say to somebody, oh, "Well, this room's just the, you know, when one of these high-profile, <laughs> whatever they are, MVP people that Nikita has come round, um, you know, I, I always say to them, "Well, this is the room where I just put the rubbish, and then realise that their books on the shelf." So, it, you know. <laughs> So, no, I mean, and that's the other thing, is that if, you, if you've got a writer coming around to your house, and I speak, you know, I've experienced this myself, do you want to see your book on their shelves? Or do you, and, 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 and equally, if they're coming around, are they going to be embarrassed if they suddenly see all of, all of their books 
piled up or are they going to be delighted? It depends on the author, right? I mean, so I think John Irving would be delighted, yeah, very happy delighted. if he went into a house and he saw all of his books in a row. So you're going around to a friend's house, Matt, and you know they've got at least mm -hmm. one or more of your books. Do you hope to find it yeah. in the living room or in the spare room or I think next the to the bed is the, is the dream, isn't all it? In that time. pile that they like return always, to all the time. Always, you know, years, always for there. Years, you know. It's always yeah. been on their bed. 15 years, Matt. it's just stayed there. <laughs> so I'll read that book one day. <laughs> what about on the landing? I've seen my book on that sort of strange small bookshelf on the landing. <laughs> Do you know that one? In people's yeah, I know exactly. Is that a sort of nice things that the guests might want to read? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ah, now I understand. It's sort of that. It's also no man's land as well, isn't it? This is a book I own, but I don't feel particularly vested in that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I don't know, and I don't know where it's supposed to go. You know, it's like it might be a, <laughs> <laughs> it might be useful. Yeah. Have you ever found? Has anyone ever found their books in a holiday cottage or an Airbnb? All the time. Once, I've seen it once. I was, it was that felt exciting, very exciting. Did you sign it? <laughs> 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 I suppose so. You should have signed it, Nikita. Yeah, I should have. You should have said, I was here. I stayed here. Yeah, signed it in a really audacious way. Overly intimate. An overly intimate signing. Yes, I'll never forget <laughs> you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Let's get on with the show. we got so much chat. <laughs> Loads of chat. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today you find us in the stolid misdamped streets of post-war Vienna, hurrying past half-empty restaurants and pastry shops in search of a lost child, while near us, just out of sight, there lurks the sinister, warty-skinned preacher known as the Undertow. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously, and joining us today for the second time on Batlisted is the double act of Nikita Lalwani and Matt Thorne. Hello. Hi, Andy. Hi. Hello. Hi, guys. John. And uh, Nikita and Matt were last here, unbelievably, two years ago, uh, to talk about the terrifying Something Happened by Joseph Heller, which some of us are still recuperating. <laughs> yeah. It still haunts me, that book. It really does. I think about it. I mustn't. I doubt a week goes by when I don't think about it. And the ghastly Bob Slocum. <laughs> But we really love that book and we love that episode. And when we all went to the pub after the recording and we knew it was a good one, uh, we had a conversation where we said, oh, it would be great to get Matt and Nikita back. But this time, like, because I think, I think Matt chose something happened. So it's Nikita's turn to choose something. And uh, Nikita, what did you choose? The World According to Garp by John Irving. So we've all been in lockdown reading The World According to Garp and... I can tell you from the conversations that have already taken place off air that everybody has thoughts that they wish to express in, in the next hour or so. So we'll get to it as quickly as we can. So let me introduce our guest first. Nikita is the author of three novels, including her latest You People, just out from Viking, and which I talked about on our last episode. For those of you listening to that, if you haven't listened to the last episode, please listen to me talk about how much I loved Nikita's novel on that the reason I did it last time is because I slightly wanted to spare her blushes this time, but it was such a great book. Wonderful, wonderful book. I finished it this week as well, Nikita. I'm really, really full of admiration for it. Oh, thanks so much, guys. No, thank, <laughs> thank you, you yeah. 
for for making me uh, get out of Kent for a bit. <laughs> That's what I'd say to anyone now. That's my new way of saying thanks for your book, which is thanks for getting me out of Kent. Getting me out of Kent. Anyway, You People has been optioned for television by World Productions, creator of The Bodyguard and Line of Duty. Nikita is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and her work has been translated into 16 languages. And the thing I wanted to ask you, Nikita, um, is what's it been like publishing a new novel uh, now in the middle of all this? It's been... Very different week to week. So obviously the book came out on something like April the 2nd, so lockdown had just begun. And initially there was that palpable loss of not being able to touch the book in a bookshop, which actually is quite important to me. I didn't realise that that was the visual I was getting. Um, No launch, um, and chance to kind of celebrate in person. But that felt like a small thing, given what everyone was going through and what we were all going through together. I feel like the book community has really come together in really moving ways to promote books at the moment. So there are all kinds of platforms and initiatives and writers supporting writers. Lots of video sharing and Mm -hmm. discussions going on. Lots of stuff happening on podcasts and on um, the whole radio circuit. And reviews have started happening, and that's exciting. And now there's a whole conversation about people wanting to read in lockdown. So I feel like the book is very much discussed, even though it's not in a physical bookshop. It feels like it's on a virtual shelf somewhere. And yeah, on the landing. It's on the landing. It's on the landing of someone's house in a virtual bookshop. And most importantly, in what formats can can we or listeners buy you people at the moment? So, yeah, it's available in hardback with various booksellers now. So it's it's in stock and it is turning up after about a week if you buy it online. <laughs> Good. Um, and you can buy it as an ebook too. So you people is also an audio book as well. So there are three different ways to experience Amazing. it. But right. that's also exciting that Excellent. it's in stock and it and booksellers are sending it everywhere. So as I say, the feeling goes up and down because it's not communal in a physical sense, but there is this really cheering communal experience going on in terms of the dialogue around it. Wow, thank you. That's really that's really upbeat. Um, I, t- I, I turn to Matt now to bring us down. So, <laughs> so yeah. That's what I'm here for. So Matt is also a novelist with six books under his belt, including Eight Minutes Idle, which was adapted into a film by BBC Films. He's also written three children's books, and his most recent book was a critical study of the pop star Prince, and that was published by Faber. Matt, I'm going to ask you the question that you shouldn't really ask writers at the moment, but are you getting any writing done? Um, I wasn't, well, it's it's been a a weird lockdown for me, as I'm sure it has for everyone else. But initially, I was reviewing for the Catholic Herald, and I'd been given a pile of books that were completely appropriate for the lockdown. The first one was about solitude. And then there was a second one about death. And then the third one was about the afterlife. So it... (laughs) 
<laughs> that's it. That's the whole of the whole of human experience in three books. There, <laughs> Matt, Matt Thorne rubbing his hands together in glee. No, no, in terror. But you know, but but right. you know, it was something to do, and it felt like you know, and it felt like because I, I, I mean, you know, immediately all the uh, all the columnists on Twitter have been saying. Oh, these novelists will write novels about coronavirus, and they'll be terrible. We won't want to read them. And 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 there are even novelists saying things like, um, oh, "What's that guy? Alex Preston? He was saying that uh, uh, that we'll all be writing adultery novels. It will all be about you know the somebody's gone in the lockdown and they can't get to see their mistress. And nobody's going to write these these books. Well, maybe they will, but I feel that when this is over, people won't want to think about it for a while. You know, it's going to be it's going to be it's going to take a while. It's going to be you know there's going to be a bit of of, of, of reckoning so I, I didn't really and and also there's a lot of people who haven't written before who are suddenly writing now like i'm in a whatsapp group and everybody's with my neighbors and they're all going oh we're all starting our novels now this is important let's remember history and I, I think, no no this no. is the worst time to ever start no, a novel please don't. You know? please don't. <laughs> no. i mean not only will you have all the books that were postponed from last year that will come out next year you'll have all the books that people wrote during this time and all the books by people who are starting for you know starting afresh yeah. these, these, these. so so I, I i was quite happy to be writing these reviews because it meant i could respond to what was happening and my own feelings but with the venue of, of reviewing these books so it didn't feel completely self-indulgent or separated from what's actually happening uh and then since i've, I've but but I've, with as with a lot of these things the uh the catholic herald has then reduced their numbers of, of issues and you know newspapers and magazines are you know going through a difficult yeah. time at the moment so um so that's gone away so so then I, fortunately i do have a contract for for a non-fiction book so i'm working on that so i'm quite happily working on working on non-fiction uh, and it's a, a music related book um but in terms of writing fiction, I, I think it's impossible. I mean, I, I'm sure there will be people who, who who write brilliant novels about this this time. Of course, I mean that's always always the case. But I I do think there'll be we have to go through these stages of first um, understanding what's happened, and then I think the books that will be really interesting won't be the ones that remember this time, but they deal with what happens after this. And I, I've I mean I think what I've heard particularly from TV people at the moment, what they're looking for is is really upbeat stuff about things like that. What's he called? Colonel Tom or Major Tom Major or whatever Tom. he's called. Captain Tom. Uh, you know. <laughs> they're very different Toms. But, you know, uh, uh, yeah. Very different Toms. <laughs> but, but, you know, every, everybody's going to want these really optimistic stuff. But I think it will be, there's also room for a kind of a noir response to it in that, you know, not dealing with any of the terrible things that happen, but what the world's going to be like after this when we're all starting to learn how to do things again for the first time in a way. Um, and that world will be really interesting. I think that that, that will make, mm. writing about that world will be far more interesting than there's writing also about Also, somebody pointed out experience. there's not a lot of um, Spanish flu literature. No, exactly, yeah, yeah. So it may well be, as you suggest, that... that um, this period is not the period people want to write about and it's it's what comes next that uh whatever that's going to be john what have you been reading this week well i've been reading not in any kind of for any morbid reason but uh, a fortnight ago uh tim robinson um uh, died uh of covid uh complications um he was he was suffering from parkinson's as well but and he was um I guess he was in his uh, I guess he was in his seventies, late seventies. Um, but uh, he is uh, a, an artist and a writer and a map maker, and he's 
moved to um, the Aran Islands in 1972. He was born in Yorkshire and lived in various places in Europe and moved with his wife, uh, Merid, to, um, to the Aran Islands, where he set about making the most incredibly detailed physical maps of every, pretty much every stone, every rock on the island, but also gathering stories and researching history and owning that particular tiny little place on the planet in order to tell an amazing epic story of evolution and of kind of philosophical development. And he produced a, a series of books, but the two, the one I wanted to talk about today is the first one, which is called Stones of Aaron Pilgrimage, which is his account of a journey sunwise around, uh, around the largest of the Aran Islands. This was published in uh, 1986 um, by a small Irish publisher, Wolfhound Press. Uh, and then he was taken up by Lilliput Press, another small Irish publisher, and eventually he came. He was published in Penguin. It won all kinds of awards. He's like the spiritual godfather of the whole of the what you might call the sort of Robert McFarlane school of of, uh, of writing. It's a beautiful, rich. I mean, he's better than almost anybody who's ever tried to do it because he takes one place. You know, I kind of like. I've always said in this, I like the practitioners. I like the people who are shepherds or who make dry stone walls, who live in the landscape because it's their job. Although he was an out, an outsider, nobody has, has, I mean, he learned the language. He totally soaks himself in this tiny little bit of land and he spins out of it the most amazing, the most amazing stories. It's a beautiful book. He was a, a remarkable man. He came over to London uh, with his wife and uh, and then he got ill and he couldn't go back and he died and his wife died two weeks after he died. They had worked together for 50 years on this extraordinary project. It's an amazing story. I'm just going to read you a tiny little bit because, uh, which is uh, it turns out to have a slightly kind of John Irving-y feeling to it, but it gives you just a feeling for the, for the prose. Uh, a last impression, a stumpy leg dog, white with brown blotches, mainly gun dog, but a bit, with a bit of seal in him, according to his owner, our adopted pet, Oscar, dearly loved and sadly missed, as the death notices put it. I used to throw a ball for him on the strand, a game that almost killed the neglected creature with delight. If I stood forgetful with ball in my hand, lost in my musings over the riddles propounded by the sea to the sand, he would wait patiently at my feet, looking up, and very delicately place a paw on my toe to recall me. Then I would glance down and catch him saying, There are just two ways, or perhaps three, in which you can hope to give supreme pleasure to another living being. You can go home and make love to her who loves you, or you can throw that ball for your dog. This is the time for the second alternative, for the third is to go on trying to perfect your book, which I do not believe you have it in you to do. No, dogs do not speak, the sea does not riddle, dolphins do not pray, the vagrant bird neither trusts nor does trust, Robinson. Waves never sign anything. What I myself witness is my own forgery. One should forego these over-luxuriant metaphors that covertly impute a desire of communication to non-human reality. We ourselves are the only source of meaning, at least on this little beach of the universe. These inscriptions that we insist on finding on every stone, every sand grain, are in our own hand. People who write letters to themselves are generally regarded as pathetic, but such is the human condition. We are writing a work so vast, so multivocal, so driven asunder by its project of becoming coextensive with reality, 
that when we come across scattered phrases of it, we fail to recognise them as our own. Beautiful. Yeah, that's and quite that's quite good. And quite Irving-like, I thought that whole mm. so multivocal. This sort of trying to turn the world into something that is intelligible. It's our own handwriting, but we don't recognise mm. it. Um, Andy, what have you been reading? Well, what I've actually been reading um, is another novel by Sheena Mackay called Heligoland. <gasps> oh, uh, but I'm not going to talk about it partly because. Um, because I've got something else to talk about, but also because I loved it so much, I, I, it's one that I've put on the on the in the fire on the. On the <laughs> you loved it so um, much, you put it in the fire. <laughs> no, 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 no. On the no, in the landing. On the landing. I put it on the landing bookshelf. <laughs> on the landing. Because I hope we might do a, a full episode on Sheena Mackay or on that novel. So. I've never read it, and I would, but I love her to you know with an yeah. intensity that is and, but also because we've got matt here and because an, ex- an exciting <laughs> don't, don't thing blame me happened, don't blame me for this i've been uh, reading though i contain multitudes and there's another much longer one called murder most foul murder most foul um uh, <laughs> and murder most foul has um one of the historic things about it apart from the fact it's 17 minutes long is it is it matt is it bob dylan's first number one single in the states yeah I'm- I think I think that's true, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's the first time he's ever got to number Incredible. one. Incredible! Wow. Um, before I turn to Matt, who is a, a, a Dylan aficionado, Nikita, are you a Dylan <laughs> fan? Yeah, I'm a huge Dylan fan, and when I was listening it to to that, then I just felt a deep fondness. I know a deep pleasure. Um, just the, you know, it's so mischievous. It's Bob just mashing it all up, shaving off all yeah. hierarchies. Yeah. Um, I, I I like fast food and I drive fast cars. I mean, it's really <laughs> audacious. I picture him doing both those <laughs> things. He's, it's dare, yeah. he's daring you. I mean, he's it's a daring, you know, it's chew on this. You know, I dare you not to smile. I dare you not to laugh at this absurd practice of making art. Something like... A, a little bit reminded me a bit of his Nobel Prize speech, actually. Yeah. I tell you what it reminds me of is uh, Sir Mix a Lot's Baby's Got Back. You know, it's like, I like big butts and I cannot lie. That's what it says, <laughs> not, not a great literature. Also a great song. <laughs> <laughs> I Contain Multitudes is, uh, is ironically named because it, it seems to have only one note. The whole melody is one note. <laughs> Um, but what but what you hear on that clip is really fascinating. Classic Dylan thing there of, like you were saying, Nikita, from one line to another, you know, that some of them are silly. You know, the, the use of yeah. the phrase, those British bad boys, the Rolling Stones, is the tip, right? But then, yeah, suddenly it, oh, that's, but then suddenly it switches into something really um, Dylan-y and melancholy and... and, and Timeless moving. and moving, yeah. yeah. William so, Blake. Yeah, so William that. Blake, yeah, Matt, what were you saying about these songs? Well, you know, I, I understand that some people have, have made these arguments and a lot of people seem to seem to agree, but for me, it, it, it just sounds it just sounds like he's on the landing <laughs> of his house, looking down the books <laughs> and just reading them out. <laughs> <laughs> Which was also a, a criticism made of the Nobel speech, wasn't it? That it well, yeah, you know, it's like like up. Charles Dick. Anyone could do it. Like Charles Dickens of having hard times, you know, like 
like like George Eliot, there's no mill on my floss. <laughs> the other way around, no floss on my mill. You know, I mean, it's easy. You know, you just got to get in the right order. But apart from that, it's, uh, you know, I mean, it... this is a lot more knowing. This is like him saying, "I'm sta- I, He was standing in the doorway, looking like the Jack of Hearts. I think it's more like that. It's very cur- curated, sculpted, put together. It's it's not deranged in the way you're suggesting, Matt. Look, I've got his I've got his <laughs> notes, Matt. I've got his notes here, and it, and he's what he's written is he's written. Like you were saying, floss mill something something mockingbird kill. He's 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 trying to work towards that. Wait, no, no. I mean that's been the thing for years, hasn't it? That he he has just bought, and people don't mind, but you know he has just borrowed from lots of books. There were the Japanese novels where he borrowed all the lines. But I think he's reached the stage now where he really doesn't care. You know, I mean that because Murder Most Foul as well. That's a, a book about JFK, isn't it? That's where he got the the uh, mm-hmm. the title for the song from. Was that there was this book about JFK? Amongst the Dylanologists, though, that is sort of you know he'd always said he would never write about the the assassination because it was all it was too important to him. And then he has, and I just it's fascinating to watch the the kind of the cascading discussions online of of uh, but what is he really saying? And it's I mean I don't know. I, I love the levity he has in these songs. It's just great. He... Do we know if these are new or if they or if they've been sitting around for? Well, I mean, the story is that they've been sitting around since about 2012, and he did. There's a couple of songs like this, aren't there? On on Tempest, there's one. There's one about uh, one about the Titanic, and then one about John Lennon. Um, and I think it. You know, I, I, charitably, I would like to think that he wrote maybe a hundred <laughs> of these in the same style. <laughs> And he's finally, he's parceled them out and he's thought, okay, well, you know, let's just put out a couple now. The landing you know, tapes. Put out eight more <laughs> in a few weeks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What I, what I don't want is a whole no, album Matt, of this. Matt, it's going to be terrible. I want, I know, want I just... a double album, side one, Murder Most Foul, and three <laughs> more songs, one per side. And each... A Christ- it's a Christmas album. It's yeah. one you need to at Christmas. Each Cover maybe there'll be a song about Spanish flu, which will last. Yeah, I, think, I think he's taking he's taking John Lennon. He's taking the big, big iconic subjects. It's great, yeah. With with a sort of you know, with, as you say, Andy, one maybe two notes. It's great. Isn't he just acknowledging that all writing is a form of plagiarism when he does this? I I do think he does it on purpose. It feels so rhythmically put together. It's not an accident, is it? It's not just all falling into a page of cuttings. It's the it's the folk tradition. It TM. Is. It's the folk tradition. That's what he always says, isn't it? But, but you know, give, given given that he actually knows the Rolling Stones, <laughs> couldn't he come up with a better yeah, way well, of describing the British, than the British bad boys? Boy. Boy. He's using vernacular. Yeah. It's, that's isn't it? What what's wrong with that? Uh, isn't well, there, there's a lot of this going on with Bob all the time, isn't it? Everything. <laughs> well, Nicky is is saying five minutes are up, but Nick, I think this should be seventeen minutes long. This <laughs> <bit>. <laughs> We'll pick this up again after some adverts. Stay tuned to this. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Let's turn to the main event, which is The World According to Garp by John Irving, first published in 1978 by Dutton in uh, the US and Galantz in the UK. And I'm going to ask each of us in turn 
uh, and I'll start. I last read a book by John Irving in 1990. Mitch, when did you last read a book by John Irving? Uh, I'm, I think I can beat that. My, the last John Irving I read was in 1989, um, which was uh, a Prayer for Our Own Meaning. And did you see him read from it at, at Waterstones in Charing Cross Road, as our friend Jonathan asked yesterday? I did. I did. It was one of one of the great nights, actually. That was a, a uh, he was. It was absolutely one of the best readings I've seen by anybody. And that sequence of readings at that shop, which had started some years earlier with uh, Tobias Wolf, uh, the sort of dirty realism to it, and Richard Ford, but um, Irving absolutely knocked it out of the park. It was amazing doing the very high pitched capital letter voice kind of um, of Owen Meaning. Uh, it was brilliant. And Nikita, when when did you last read a book by John Irving? Other than this one, um, I think I read uh, Owen Meany about two years ago. Yeah, for the first time or rereading it for the first time. So I I first read John Irving only six years ago. Okay, so we'll come to that. We'll will. That's fascinating. <laughs> and Matt, when did you? Uh, are you you're a fan, aren't you? You're a, an Irving uh, fan. Yeah, within reason. I mean, I I I. I tried to find before I came on here the last one that I reviewed, but because newspaper databases have all disappeared now, I reviewed one for The Independent, and I can't remember, which probably isn't a good sign, whether it was Until I Find You or A Widow for One Year. But I, I did read Last Night at Twisted River, which I think was a couple ago, but I haven't read the last one. The last one I didn't... I mean, the last one didn't appear to be on the radar at all. I don't I don't have any kind of recollection of that even coming out to be honest but the but i i was re- reading him pretty regularly up until uh the one there's one where he's just working in a restaurant and he actually did go and work in a restaurant and the first 100 pages are about him making an omelet or something and i just couldn't read anymore that was, <laughs> <laughs> that was where i gave up i sp- i guess what i'm i feel for a lot of people that john irving sort of um if you're if you're our generation lots of people read irving in the 80s or early 90s and he's carried on of course being a tremendously successful author publishing um published 14 novels he's he's still widely read but i think there's a sense that uh, perhaps he slightly belongs to that era that era when he first rose to prominence and when you guys suggested we do irving and do garp on here i was thinking oh that'd be interesting uh, it'll be nice to to hook up with John Irving again after such a long gap because I I had really enjoyed the books of his that I'd read, and coming back to it, I I thought, wow, this is totally fascinating. This is not the book I thought it was going to be, <laughs> or by the author I thought John Irving was. So there you go. That goes to show what I, I should have I should have kept paying attention over the last couple of decades. Matt, when did you first? Read Irving or Gart or both. Well, I mean, um, when I was a kid, my um, my mother used to go to this place called the, the Settlement, which was sort of a it was a bit like Jenny Fields's, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of encampment in the in the in the book. And I remember this book really hit all those people there really hard. This was in the seventies. It was about I guess it was probably about seventy nine. I would have been about five or six, a little bit maybe a little bit older. And everybody, there was a real buzz about this book. And I remember thinking, I really want to read this book, even though from an early, I was too young to to, to do it. Um, and then when I was about 12 or 13, it was in the school library. And I immediately, I was just drawn, you know, there's that cover um, that had a kind of 
fetus on the cover. It looks a bit like a sort of a razor head fetus. So I had no idea what the book was. It looked like an entire book about a baby. And everybody was getting <laughs> everybody was getting really upset about it and really passionate. And I just remember these people, somebody said, how dare you read that book? He says such terrible things, things about women. And then somebody else was saying, you know, but it's such a feminist novel. He's the most important feminist writer there is. And I just, you know, seeing literature cause that kind of fuss made me, made me want to read it as soon as I possibly could. And Nikita, when did you, so if you started reading Irving about five or six years ago, when did you get to this one? So I started with this one. So it was that very exciting thing of reading something in adult life that completely takes you over in the way that you might develop passions for reading a writer. I don't know, the way you might feel that when you're 16 or in the sixth form or at university, those are very particular sweet fallings, aren't they? The ones that you do in your in the early journeys of literature and literature loving and and, and also you really hate writers then and then later <laughs> when you're writing I mean you, you love and hate you know in that sort of very Irving Garp-esque way um the, the feelings are very strong and then when I read this which was six years ago I was actually teaching creative writing and was already a writer and so I wasn't expecting anything to really bowled me over in that way and I I saw it on a list of a course that another writer was teaching James Hawes and he was a colleague and I thought oh I've never read that maybe I'll maybe I'll read that now maybe now's the time to finally read it of course the books was very much in public consciousness I thought and I knew about it I knew about the film I hadn't seen the film either And so I read it then and just the the bombast of it and the humour and the politics and the unapologetic absurdity and the somersaulting bravura style. I just, you know, laughing and crying as I read it, often in the same page. Um, I thought it was amazing. Certainly it is amazing. I think I don't think anybody who can read it would not be amazed by uh, just the, the... sheer chutzpah of the book is it's unflagging i think incredible one of the things that totally surprised me about it oh it is i think i thought it would be like reading a tom robbins novel <laughs> you know it would have that slightly 70s ish uh oh, I see. kind of vibe okay. right it would it would be a sort of like or a slightly dice manny kind Ooh. of feel to it <laughs> A book that would have Zany on the yeah. cover. Yeah, yeah, Matt, that is yeah. exactly right. Zany. Right. Zany. Zany. And what really blew me away is how contemporary it felt in terms of some of the issues that it deals with. Unbelievable, yeah. And we've got a clip here of John Irving talking in 2018 when the novel was reissued uh, about why it might speak to people now. I even imagined as I was writing this novel more than 40 years ago now that it would be out of date before I finished it. It seemed to me that the kind of sexual discrimination I was writing about was truly too backward to last. Well, I was wrong. Uh, Things may be better, but in many areas of the world, Uh, In my birth country, the United States included, women are still treated as if they were sexual minorities. And from the sympathy I've always felt for 
women being treated as sexual minorities, I recognized that smaller, actual sexual minorities, gay men, lesbian women, transgender men and women, were treated even worse. I'm dismayed that sexual intolerance is still tolerated 40 years after I was writing about it. But it is. That's why I say it's not, to me, entirely good news that the world, according to GARP, is, is still relevant and why I say it should be a period piece. So that's yeah. what I mean. I mean, you know, I was complete. I thought we were getting a period piece and yeah. we get this full on assault on, it seems to me anyway, on attitudes to gender and sex roles and all those things that you might expect to read in a very contemporary novel now. Yeah. And I mean, violence all the way through it. It's, it's unbelievable. Like Matt, you were saying like that, that people were saying to you when you were a kid, you shouldn't be reading this because of some of the things that he says about women. But other people were saying, well, you shouldn't be reading it because he says the opposite to what the first group of people were saying. You know, when you came back to it now, how did you, how did you feel about it reading it as a, a, a grown-up in 2020? Well, I think there are two levels that the book is interesting on. You know, one is for writers, you know, because it's so much about it writing, really, even though that really really Irving is. says, you know, it's not about writing. That's not the most important thing. That's not true. It is about writing. You know, that's very important. And the other thing is the sexual politics. And the thing is, the books that he'd written up until then um, do have a very sort of 70s feel about their sexual politics. And it is, you know, it is all that zany thing where everybody's having an orgy every chapter and, you know, it's all very sort of uh disturbing and there's a bit of that in this but it's so different to the sexual attitudes in a John Updike novel or a you know Saul Bellow novel or a, or a Philip Roth novel you know he he does he he really gets involved with gender politics fearlessly and without sort of steering it towards the male camp as other male writers do but at the same time there are there is a sort of incredible sexual graphicness about it and there he does write so much about rape and abuse and about men doing terrible things to women but at the same time you've got a character who's going around sleeping with prostitutes and that's just part of the parcel that's fine and it's okay you know it's a very unusual form of sexual politics you know it feels on one hand very enlightened but on the other it's written in a time where you know i mean maybe because it's pre-aids maybe because it's pre that kind of that, that kind of morality it, it it feels very sort of confusing in that way you know i mean it, and and also obviously the autobiographical connections you know he went to university in Vienna, so lots of his novels are, have yeah. sections set in Vienna. But the idea of going with your mother to <laughs> Vienna and your mother buying prostitutes yeah. for you, and I mean, when I when I read, I mean, it's a bit like something happened. I was saying it was really weird reading it as a child and thinking that's what the adult world is like, you know. So, you know, so so when I read that when <laughs> I was lovely. too young not to know any better, I was just thinking, oh well, maybe when I'm eighteen, I'll go off to Vienna. <laughs> with my mother and you know she'll arrange these prostitutes and that will be fine and everybody will think it's lovely and was it <laughs> <laughs> i must ask nikisa what did you make of the sexual politics of it when you read it in the year 2014 well it's interesting because um just the fact that matt read it at 12 john irving in that forward that you just quoted him reading from uh, to the 40-year anniversary, I think, or, or mm -hmm. one of the anniversaries, mm -hmm. he says that he gave it to his son to read when he was 12, and he was worried and nervous about what the son would think. Um, and I'm thinking now, was he worried that we all essentially read fiction 
thinking that it's a guide or a manual to living. So like Matt wonders when he's reading it at 12, whether he'll go to Vienna and have, you know, sexual favours delivered to him courtesy of his mother's purchasing powers. Um, whether John Irving thinks that's going to happen to his child, it's it's really interesting when you read it. I think that the sexual politics are very honest yeah. and warts, of, warts and all. And he kind of is so under the skin of feminism of that time and so respectful of it at so many points in the book and also just really hates it, just really hates the fact that the feminist who feels most kind of endearing to me, which is his mother, who's a very strong Marmite-ish character and annoys a lot of readers, that she can constantly quiz him on male lust and constantly interview him about male <laughs> lust and constantly ask about it and not know it. And he's just like enough already with the male lust questions. Yeah. Um, mm. But he also <laughs> is so sympathetic to feminism and to the uh, the trans situation. And he said somewhere that he keeps, well, he kept writing the trans character into all his books. Roberta, Roberta turns up yeah. in some form or another in all of his books. And that huge identification as Matt has said, with women and women's politics, femaleness and female the primacy of female um, needs, urges, discrimination, all of that is done actually very respectfully at many points in the novel and then it's torn down <laughs> by Garp in yeah. moments of sort of pitiful anger or... He's not very sympathetic when he tears mm. down feminism. Don't you think? Don't you think it? It felt to me like a book clearly written. I, I, and um, I think what you're both saying is is spot on. Actually, it's a book written in America in the seventies, where many writers are, are, are trying to make sense of what's been shaken down by the so-called permissive societies. You know what happens yeah. in what's happened in the sixties. And what I think is so interesting about reading Irving is he might not get it totally right, but he's a lot more respectful, as you suggest, of lots of aspects of it, or seeking to find balance in a way that I think other more um, lionized male American writers probably weren't trying to do. You know, they're trying to see exclusively from what does this mean for men. That's, that's not what's going on in this book. Yeah, he's trying to do it whilst also acknowledging that identity politics are, by their nature, that sort of 70s essentialism is infuriating. So to be reduced to just one of many plural identities is infuriating. Uh, so he is trying, as you say. Infuriating, that's right. That's, that's right. That's one of the key notes, isn't it? It's the book is infuriated as a series of things pass before the narrator's eye, which infuriate him. And Garp is himself infuriating in Garp without giving everything away, but he pays for that in the most, in the ultimately by in, by being a kind of uh, a kind of a gadfly. Um, I mean, it's it's a brilliant book. I, I have to say about family life as well. It's a brilliant book about uh, about parenting, about the dread, the constant existential dread that all parents have. Of, of wanting to try and control their children and wanting to trying to steer them away from danger, but at the same time, knowing that in some part that you, you have to expose them for danger for them to grow. Uh, he did say, uh, didn't he? He said that 
he he alternated all the time between which character he liked the best in the novel and what, what the book for a long time Jenny Field that Garp's mother was a more important character to him than than Garp and she is a kind of magnificent character in lots of ways but as you say Nikita uh, definitely Marmite you know definitely there's nobody in this book you can confidently say that's the that's the the calm steady moral core of the book they're all fucked up in different ways well I think he's he's a very messy writer isn't he I mean that, that's one of the I mean the people who don't like him they don't they don't like his prose and they don't like the way that he he writes and structures things and I think some of that mess is left in the book. You know, he talked, again, in that introduction, Nikita mentioned, uh, he talks about how he originally started it in 1786, and then he started it with Jenny, and then he started it with Garp. And, you know, he went, and that, that's still there. You can see that these are all sort of broken pieces that aren't completely put back together. Mm. Uh, you know, it's not, I mean, I think that those are the two problems that people have with him, are the quality of the prose and, and that kind of insistence on a Dickensian structure without really the underpinnings to do it. But, he somehow manages to get through all of that and produce stuff that's so good, sort of chapter by chapter and incident by incident, that you don't care. You know, the quality of the prose is, is almost irrelevant. I want to talk uh, later on about, about that Dickensian thing, about, his, about how he uses plot, not what the plots are in his books, but how he uses plot. I think that's one of the things that really distinguishes Irving as a writer. It, it's, that, it's almost the sense you were talking about things being in quotation marks, plot in Irving's books is often <laughs> in quotation marks <laughs> a thing needs to happen now reader yeah. and and so I'm going to put boy, a thing before boy you does it <laughs> always it's also about whether he'll pull it off though isn't yeah. it the plot yeah. I mean you know that, that whole thing of putting massive chunks of, of novels in your so book brave. and short stories is like I mean no I don't, you know hardly anyone has ever done that because you know unless it's things like you know you know back in the, the classic era like maybe you know Cameron or Don Quixote but you know to just have so much of a different novel in your book I mean if you took those bits out the book would, would collapse it only really works in a way and that's where the film had some problems because it's a method of delivering all these other stories at the same time I'm going to read the blurb as we do traditionally on that listed and what I've got is the jack is the flap copy from a from the US first edition so before there before this book was a bestseller and this was John Irving's first bestseller before John Irving had a great reputation and this book's arrived <laughs> you know we we're, we're sort of familiar with what Irving represents but but readers publishers yeah. for, 42 <laughs> years ago I, I was I was really thinking how did they market this book right so here's what they here's what was on the jacket of the US first edition and this will set it up for listeners who haven't read it as well like the great novels of the past that moved us profoundly and still echo in our minds <laughs> <laughs> that's starting now that's starting high <laughs> the world according to garp creates a populous world and persuades us to dwell in it for an extended time garp's world is an imagined one but it lights up the real world for us with all its terrors and delights its uh, themes of rage and love its alternation between comedy and tragedy new para the main story in the world according to Garp, brackets, and it is a novel filled with stories, close brackets, is of a, that's a publisher's touch, well done, <laughs> is of a man with a famous mother, a man who reaches toward fame himself. Jenny Fields is the black sheep daughter of an aristocratic New England family. She becomes, almost by accident, a feminist leader ahead of her time. 
Her son, T.S. Garp, named for a father he never saw, has high ambitions for his artistic career, but he has an even higher obsessive devotion to his wife and children. Surrounding Garp and Jenny are a wide assortment of people, school teachers and whores, wrestlers and radicals, editors and something I can't read, (laughs) editors and writers, transsexuals and rapists, and husbands and wives. It is John Irving's special gift that all his characters, even the least lovable among them, are portrayed not just vividly, but affectionately. The pace and language of this novel are edited to Garp's life and career, explosive with energy, full of ribaldry and a sense of drama. In three previous novels, John Irving established himself as one of the most imaginative writers of his generation. With his new novel, he has taken a quantum leap forward. The World According to Garp is a work of extraordinary narrative power, rich, humorous and wise. I mean, I'd like to think John Irving wrote that. (laughs) (laughs) What's interesting is that um, there's a lot of positive visualisation going on in Garp because... Garp writes a bestseller, doesn't he? Which is yeah, virtually called The World According to Garp. I, it's called The World According to Something Else. But so weird. he writes a bestseller and then this becomes a bestseller. I, I kind of like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the same thing Nabokov used to do where he, he puts his novels in, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of fictionalised versions of, of his novels. But the thing is, you think that maybe this is the first time he, he he's writing about being a writer, you know, because you might think, well, okay, he'd reached that kind of point in his career where he wanted a bestseller, so he wrote about a bestselling novelist. But his other earlier books are about novelists as well, you know, so he was always writing about himself right from the very beginning. And and I think a lot of people don't like books about writers. I love books about writers, but I think writers often often do. Yeah. But I think the way, there are two ways that he makes it acceptable in this. One is that he he, he writes in the third person, so you don't have the sense that, of connecting Garp and, and, and John Irving too closely. No. And later on, he rewrote another book into the third person because he worked for that same that very same reason. And the other thing is that he surrounds himself with normal people who come up, or when I say normal people, <laughs> you know, he, with, you know, policemen and, and regular everyday characters who come up to him and have an argument with him and say, you know, why should anyone be interested in what your, non- your, your nonsense is? So we have a sense of the real world being around him. And I think that's probably what made it, or one of the things that made it a bestseller, is he puts, he makes the writer seem like a desirable job, but then puts it in a world of other jobs that are equally desirable and, and doesn't make the writer this incredible hero figure. He makes him a kind of tragic, doomed person rather than, you know, what would happen in other when you know when when Roth, for example, writes about writers and he always wins the argument and he's always the best character and everyone else has to bow down to him. With this, he makes Garth the butt of lots of what's yeah, that's, that's it. Yeah. Hey Nikita, yeah. Nikita, I found a list on the internet of things one can expect to find in John Irving novels. And so I'm going to read this out to you and I want you to choose your favourite, right? Brilliant. So which of these is the thing you most look forward to finding in a John Irving novel? Is it bears? <laughs> New England, hotels, Vienna, wrestling, sex, violence, or writing fiction? Ooh. So it's, I mean, it's definitely not Bears, Vienna, or um, <laughs> the other one early on. Um, New England. It's. A, it's New England, right? I'm not looking for New England in a John Irving novel. <laughs> uh, it's probably sex. 
Yeah. Because it sex delineates character in this incredible way and is also part of plot. All of the tension is usually concentrated in what happens during sex and also the recompense for the sexual act, isn't it? People are punished or rewarded yeah. for their sexual misdemeanours and that is very interesting. And there's a lot of humour around it, probably sex. Crime and punishment, that's a big thing for Irving, right? There's, yeah. there's, and, and the death wish. There's, 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 the death wish is a thing in this book which seemed... You know, well, when, it, you know, when it, I was rereading it, I was thinking about the death wish, and I was thinking, I'm not so sure. It's I, I think isn't it just straight up fear of death? Uh, so he puts it in to tackle the greatest fear. Um, part part of the plot is linked to trying to believe that you could live on after that greatest mm. fear. But also, is but also experienced. He, but also, he does that thing of. Some characters he kills for drama. Yeah. <laughs> Some characters he kills for thematic necessity. And those that he hasn't killed for drama or thematic necessity, he does a roundup to, to, at the end of the book to give you all yeah. their deaths. <laughs> yeah. Is, he which... feels the book hasn't ended unless it's not, he can't write the end and underline it in with bold <laughs> unless he's killed everyone. I mean, right? Uh, I mean, plot spoiler, but yeah. <laughs> Sometimes he jumps. Sometimes he jumps forward as well, though, doesn't he? That, so, I mean, that's what I find very unusual. I mean, some other people have done it. I think probably influenced by him as well. Where you know he'll describe a character in the middle, and then he'll say, "And that character died in this way yeah. ten years later or twenty years later." So he he, he 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 does weird things with time. You know, he's constantly moved. He's always looking like every time he meets somebody, he looks at the whole of their life, even if they're just a sort of small character. You know, the 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 you know you have a character who. Crops up. He does. He, he loves he tying up. Tie back together, doesn't he? He yeah. loves tying up loose ends, doesn't he? He's got that kind of Dickensian, that Dickensian thing, definitely, of wanting to make sure that you know all the, or you know, right to the very last pages of the book, that you know where everybody's ended up. So, Garp was uh, Irving's fourth novel, and um, here he is in 2018 again, talking about what the publication of the novel meant for him. It was my fourth novel. I had learned something from the experience of writing the first three. But it was my first novel with uh, a social subject, my first political novel, my first protest novel, as I would uh, describe it. Yeah. And it was written at a time, personally, of considerable duress. I was a full-time wrestling coach, a full-time English teacher, and I had two young children. And I was lucky if I got to write for as many as two hours a day and not every day of the week. So whatever I think of Garp with hindsight, I'm eternally grateful to it because it is the book that made me a full-time writer. It is the book that eventually enabled me to write seven hours a day, eight days a week. It freed me from having to have other jobs. And I never imagined at the time I was writing it that I would ever be self-supporting as a writer. I had no reason to think I would be. Nikita, Nikita, could you read us a little bit of this implausible bestseller? Huh. Well, 
the bit I was going to read is actually all about this idea that Matt was referencing earlier where the act of writing is torn down several times and the writer is put in his place or in her place regularly in the book. So it's about halfway in and it's when um, Garp gets some hate mail of his own for his second book. <laughs> oh, yeah. OK, <laughs> yeah, good, good, good. Um, which so is called. It was, it was a lively letter by someone who took offence at Second Wind of the Cuckold. It was <laughs> wonderful book title. It was not a blind, stuttering, spastic farter, as you might imagine, either. <laughs> it was just what Garp needed to lift himself out of his slump. Dear shithead. <laughs> I, <laughs> I have read your novel. You seem to find other people's problems very funny. I have seen your picture with your fat head of hair. I suppose you can laugh at bold persons. And in your cruel book, you can laugh at people who can't have orgasms and people who aren't blessed with happy marriages and people whose wives and husbands are unfaithful to each other. You ought to know that persons who have these problems do not think everything is so funny. Look at the world, shithead. It is a bed of pain, people suffering, and nobody believing in God or bringing up their children right. You shithead, you don't have any problems, so you can make fun of people who do. Yours sincerely, Mrs. I.B. Poole, Findlay, Ahaya. That letter stung Garp like a slap. Rarely had he felt so importantly misunderstood. Why did people insist that if you were comic, you couldn't also be serious? And it goes on to talk about how he thinks that people mistake being profound for being sober. But uh, very amusing section. And he engages, doesn't he? I, I, there's so much, again, the resonances for today with kind of social media and, and, and trolling and, you know, not getting yourself locked into into there's so much of this book that 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 mm -hmm. feels as you said right at the beginning Andy, incredibly contemporary when you were reading it nikita i was really pleasantly surprised at how funny the book is on the yeah. kind of uh, on the atomic level that yeah. that he's got such a good ear for it's quite muscular the prose matt was saying about the the question marks around the prose but he has got a really good rhythmic ear for landing a gag and landing a one-liner and yeah, just the fact that that's mrs ib pool and she calls him shithead again and again yeah, yeah 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 but you know that he had that letter right i mean i don't know if he did but it just feels as if he must have had a letter like that you know absolutely <laughs> yeah just just like you know he got his names from from uh, telephone directories yeah this is irving talking about being a funny writer I think I, I, I learned this best from the persona of my old mentor and first reader of my first novel, Kurt Vonnegut, who was one of the funniest writers alive and one of the most depressed men I ever knew. And terrible things happened in his novels too. Mm. But if you have an instinct for comedy, you can't control it. If you are a comic writer, you will be comic, even and perhaps especially at the most awful times. In literature, I've always felt that the better time the reader, the audience, is having right up until the car hits the wall, the more 
emotionally unprepared they are for the car hitting the wall. Mm-hmm. I, I like the idea of telling a story in a way that makes my audience feel, oh, this is fun. This is until it isn't. So, Matt, that speaks to what we were talking about, about Irving's humour and also his, what he does with plot. How do you feel that he uses plot in Got or, and in some of the other novels? Well, it's interesting. I, I, I was watching the film with my with my son the other day um, to prepare for this, and I've watched it before, but I wanted to watch it again. And, and he was saying that he felt like it, the entire film was about a side character that you would <laughs> you'd have in a, in a <laughs> compared to the films he watches. He just felt like, why is it all about this? This man, I mean, it's a very low-key performance from Robin Williams, and it, it, it's very good. But I, I kind of feel that up until this point, well, I think I think I don't think you could sort of generalize about plots across his books because I think the earlier books are plotted in a fairly conventional way. Then this one isn't because he has this weird breakthrough where he starts to put in other books and other stories, and you know, and and if you took all of that out, it would sort of fall apart. You know, it, it, it's really just a sort of. I mean, I think his structure overall is is lives, you know, the whole of people's lives, like like we were saying. But then I think as he goes on after this, and I'm slightly less keen on the on the books after that because I think he became too obsessed with the idea of being Dickensian. Yeah. I don't. I think probably a lot of people said, "Oh, you're like Dickens," and then he started wanting to be like Dickens, and then started putting in much more convoluted plots. I mean, he has like later on there are murders and crimes, and there's much more of a sense that he that he's working very hard to plot it. I mean, what I like about Garp is it's almost yeah. sort of plotless, but it's full of incident. You know, there's yes. no real uh, yeah. there's the, the pattern of it. You know that people mm. come in on page one and they do yeah. something terrible at the end, and you know, but there's no real sense. And there is, uh, as you said earlier, about people being punished for sexuality or or bad behaviour, things like that. But there's not really much. No, he likes, ma- he likes making in a way. Stuff you know, it's sort of you can feel that he really and he's really just enjoying. Yeah, 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 oh, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I can do this. Let me let me see what happens if I drop this in. You feel that the, the book is kind of. It's mm, sort of, mm, mm. I mean, it's not exactly sprawling, but it, it it's never stable. It doesn't. You don't feel that you're in the hands of somebody who's calmly narrating you through. It, it, there are times when you feel it has the potential. It might just all fall apart. I, I've got yeah. a qu- I've got a quote here from his Paris Review interview, yeah. where I think every single part of this, I would ask you as I read it, it's very short to to think that what he means is the opposite of what he's saying. Uh, John Irving. I'm not a 20th century novelist. I'm not modern and certainly not postmodern. I follow the form of the 19th century novel. That was the century that produced the models of the form. I'm old fashioned, a storyteller. I'm not an analyst and I'm not an intellectual. Yeah, I mean, that's not true, is it? I mean, he, he, and that's just a lie. Yeah, I don't think any no. of those things are true, right? But also, he realizes that in the book because he's got Helen, who, you know, uh, Garp's wife, who's, who's an academic. And it's constantly giving lectures on narration or narrative or all that, you know, and he's throwing that in, you know, almost as a way of saying, look, I know all this stuff, but I'm not going to do it. But I don't get the impression that he does. And slips a bit of Wallace Stevens in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, and the books that Garp, even the plotting of the books that Garp writes, they sound like crazy books. I mean, like they they have some relation to his 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 previous books, but they're much madder versions. I mean, these books couldn't exist in the in our world. Nobody would read Second Wind of the Cuckold or or the other the, the mad <laughs> one. You know, can I can I read a bit? Is that is that okay? Yeah, yeah, please, yeah, go, please. Go, go, go. What I wanted to to read is uh, is uh, John Wolf, who's a, his editor. His response to receiving one of Garp's books, uh, this crazy book. So he's written this crazy book full of rape and violence. And uh, Garp, who's a, a 
Sorry, John Wolfe, who's a very seems like a very decent man. He's one of the characters that I like the most. I wish there were more more of his kind in the real world. But, decent, um, decent, this, and, <laughs> decent and stable. Decent and stable, exactly. So this is how he responds to receiving this nutty book. And also, my 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 uh, my wife, who's an agent, when she was watching the the film, and it's constantly Gart walking into a publisher's office and saying, just publish my book exactly as I wrote it. Keep saying, that's not how publishing works. But clearly in Gartland, this is this is how publishing works. So this is John Wolfe's response to Garp's crazy novel. What do you mean, this is chapter one, Garp's editor, John Wolfe, wrote him. How can there be any more of this? This is, in, this is entirely too much as it stands. How could you possibly go on? It, 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 it goes on, Garp wrote back. You'll see. I don't want to see it, John Wolfe told Garp on the phone. Please drop it. At least put it aside. Why don't you take a trip? It would be good for you and for Helen, I'm sure. And Duncan can travel now, can't he? But Garp not only insisted that this was going to be a novel, he insisted that John Wolfe try and sell the first chapter to a magazine. Garp had never had an agent. John Wolfe was the first man to deal with Garp's writing and he managed everything for him, just as he managed everything for Jenny Fields. Mm. That's good. I mean, you know, the the thing about Garp and you were saying, Nikita, about... I mean, it, life imitating art. I mean, this was a massive bestseller. I mean, three million copies sold, and um, you know, sat on the top of the of the bestseller lists, and was um, shortlisted for the National Book Award, and and was in the running for the Pulitzer. Was pipped to the post by Cheever. I mean, it was it it not only gave him, as he rather modestly said, financial security. It made him incredibly wealthy, wealthy enough to you know, buy a place in the Hamptons and couldn't find a house he liked, so he moved a house from New Hampshire, you know, and rebuilt it on the Hamptons. I mean, it's it's the sort of literary fame. And I'm sure some of the problems that people have with Irving is because he was so successful. I mean, he's kind of almost like the sort of um, the archetype of the of of the the um, you know great white American male novelist of the of the late twentieth century. I've always found it strange that a book like this could be a bestseller though. Don't you think? I know. It's such a strange book. If you're going to break out from an elite literary, all of the things he just said in his quote, where he says, I am not postmodern, I am not the following, I am not experimental. It's like the opposite of the Bob Dylan song, where he says, I am Mm. X, Y, and Mm. Z. Mm. Um, He's saying, I'm not, but he is. It's sort of, it's like a postmodern joke in saying, I'm not. Uh, How can that be a bestseller? Somehow. It doesn't feel like a bestseller. It's very hard to summarise it. Even the blurb was failing at summarising so, it, really. So when it? you read John Irving now here in 2020, which writers does he remind you of? Murakami. I mean, I think they're friends, um, and they sort of exercise together. And I think, I think uh, they're, 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 they do, they do. <laughs> I think Mur- <laughs> they do. They go running. Really, Murakami has translated Irving, and I think he fed into his early style. <laughs> But I think the indulgences and problems with later Murakami are there in, in Irving as well. They've almost had exactly, and they've had exactly the same careers, you know, that sort of, you know, with, with, with Murakami writing Norwegian yeah, yeah, Wood yeah. and that selling two million copies, you know, it's, exact, it's exactly the same career. It's like four or five early books, then a big breakthrough, then these wayward later ones. And constant sort of uh, anxiety about their status in the literary, in the literary canon. Yeah, yeah. As a sort of an American original, he reminds me of Randy Newman. He has this ability to ca- to create character and to make 
you you know that thing that Randy Newman does that his his songs are popular with the people he's satirizing. I can sort of see that with with um, with Irving because he is he takes particularly in garb he takes so many risks. He's on both sides of of uh, uh, as we say loved by feminists despised by feminists, and I I just think he's a I mean he's. I don't think he's 19th century at all. I think yeah, that was brilliant that you're reading that passage out. I think he is really, yeah. really, yeah. really. <laughs> I mean, this is, this, is, this is a modernist, a strange kind of, un, it's totally sui generis in some ways, even, even within his other books. I mean, I, you know, I haven't read as, as many as Matt, but I, I think Garp is, is, is something apart. I'd tell you who he reminds me. I mean, obviously, coming to him now, and we heard that clip of him talking about Vonnegut, I can see a lot of Vonnegut in uh, yeah, totally. in this book particularly i don't know about other ones but in Gart particularly yeah the writer that he yeah. reminds me of john who we did on backlisted last year stylistically doesn't really remind me of but in terms of because i listened to lots of um irving interviews when i was preparing the sh- for the show and the the figure he reminds me of is ray bradbury in yes. as much as yeah, that makes sense. They have, they both have a strong sense of, as writers and as American writers and as American writers in the media, they have a strong sense of their public persona and their figure. Right, that kind of American philosopher salesman. That yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what Bradbury was, and that's that really feels to me like what what before we came there, I was saying we got so many clips of Irving because yeah. he's so good at curating his own um, persona. So <laughs> when you listen brand. to that, always yeah, always yeah, but, be closing. Always right, be closing always be closing, always be closing. That's why he shuts down all those characters at the end of the book. You know, I, I'm 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 hitching up the wagon to the back of the <laughs> to the horse and getting out of here. I think that, yeah, that's why it's so satisfying as a book, Garp, that he does finish it and so many literary novels just build up setting, psychology, character and then fall off a cliff the minute something interesting happens. But he's quite nice about writers and writing, isn't he? Because that that Alice character who Mm. doesn't finish a novel, she's still treated quite respectfully. Uh, Every every writer, and it's not, I mean, that's one of the things, Nikita, when you were saying about reading it as a writer, I mean, it's... It's quite nice because it doesn't make even you know you don't feel like Irving where he sold two million copies. You know, Gart publishes three books, and one of them, two of them, are complete failure. His agents constantly saying to him, "You're just a literary writer. You're never going to sell any copies." Yeah, and there's all that jealousy of his mother that's just nakedly displayed in a really unappealing, unattractive way for Gart. I just wanted to do that. There's a little bit where he, I think, this whole thing about the popular and the and and the literary, where as often with Irving, I think he gets a minor character to to kind of um, to carry that 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 sort of debate forward. And there's this brilliant character who is the cleaner for the publisher in the book, uh, Jilzy Sloper, and he, you know, he's asked her. She, she occasionally, only twice, has she ever wanted to keep a copy of the book. Well, the first was with with uh, Jenny's book, the Garp's mum's book, uh, and the fem- the feminist book, and the second was was this mad novel that John 
Wolf, the publisher, had sold, he got serialised in crotch shots, a porn mag, because he despised it so much. But she likes it. And he, he says, why do you like it? She says, well, I, I like it because I read it because I want to know what happened. And then she asks, rather kind of shyly asks him for a copy and says, why? She said, well, I'm, you know, you got, I thought you were sort now you know what happens in it. Why would you want to read it again? And she said, I don't know. I might need to lend it to someone, she said. <laughs> and so he says, well, would you ever read it again yourself? John Wolfe asked. Well, Chelsea said, not all of it, I imagine, at least not all once or not right away. Again, she looked confused. Well, she said sheepishly, I guess I mean there's parts of it I wouldn't mind reading again. Why? John Wolfe asked. Lord, Jilsey said tiredly, as if she were making, finally impatient with him. It feels so true, she crooned, making the word true cry like a loon over a lake at night. It feels so true, John repeated. Lord, don't you know it is? Jilly asked him. You don't know when a book's true, Jilly sang to him. We really ought to trade jobs. She laughed now, the stout three-pronged plug of the vacuum cleaner cord clutched like a gun in her fist. I do wonder, Mr. Wolf, she said sweetly, if you'd know when a, a bathroom was clean, <laughs> she went over and peered in her wastebasket, or when a wastebasket was empty, she said, a book feels true when it feels true, she said to him impatiently. A book's true when you can say, yeah, that's just how damn people behave all the time. Then you know it's true. No, it's, it's, it's that's my favourite scene in that in that novel. I must say. So listen, we have uh, to we have to wrap up. We have to. Wind up so before we go, I'm going to ask each of you uh, in turn. I'm going to Keith. I'll start with you. So listeners who haven't read John Irving, maybe they've read him before. They've they've read Garp. They've come back to Garp. Which John Irving novel should they read next? I probably a prayer for Owen Meany. I'd say that would be a good one to go to next. A good compare and contrast if you're going to go deep. Well, I, that's the last one. I No, that's not the last one I read. That's the first one I read when it came out. And, I, you know, I can still remember whole chunks of that book remarkably clearly, which obviously I can't for lots of things I read 30 years ago. So, yes, Matt, a more recent uh, yeah, one maybe? Yeah, maybe Until I Find You. I think the Dickens influence hit hard with Side House Rules and the next few. And then I think he gets back to his weirdness and oddity and all the strangeness in that Until I, Until I Find You book. It's 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 too long and it's too rambling and it and it makes Garp seem completely sensible. I mean, the fact that you know Garp really only covers his life to about you know mid thirties in in this book it goes right through. So it's twice the length because his life's twice as long. Um, but I think if you liked Garp and wanted more of the same, I think Until I Find You would be the one that I'd, I'd recommend following it up with. I'd just like to add that it was only when I was uh, reading The World According to Garp that it occurred to me that, uh, you know, because Irving, there have been several films of Irving's work. Um, he wrote the screenplay for Cider House Rules. There's the film of Garp. Matt, you were recommending Door in the Floor, which is an yeah, adaptation of Widow yeah, yeah. for One Year. And it was only when I was thinking about those things and thinking, oh, wait a minute, now what is this book reminding me of? Oh, yeah, it's reminding me of Forrest Gump, except Forrest Gump is rubbish. <laughs> You know, Forrest Gump, is, <laughs> Forrest Gump is like, that's, this explains what Forrest Gump is. It's a rubbish John Irving film oh, that's not written by John I mean, Irving, right? Yeah. the ambition behind Forrest Gump. Yeah, right. yeah and also yeah. the idea I, of a, a, a titular <laughs> a character who has a yeah. thing wrong with them, who opens yeah. up a vista of American history, except, and this is a tribute to John Irving, 
it's no good <laughs> and it's also really conservative and whatever you know reservations we've we might have expressed about irving yeah he's a fair writer nikita this goes yeah, back yeah. to what you were saying at the beginning he is prepared to see things from all sorts of points of view even things that you the reader might not immediately identify with i do think that that's down to his honesty he's it's as though he's made a pact with himself to be honest and not to lie and therefore there's an ugliness that has to come out but there's also a deep river of respect that comes out so he's always trying to be honest or even-handed even in each situation even though as has been said he does get it wrong sometimes and he, he you know he can be really sort of not politically correct but then you know when did you ever read a book that was good that was deeply politically correct all the way through john let's wind up <laughs> that is a brilliant brilliant place to end that's it thank you to nikita and matt for taking us back to that strange and violent but weirdly familiar land of america in the 70s to nikki birch for juggling distant voices and weaving them together with the skill of a great american novelist <laughs> and to unbound for once more furnishing our virtual kitchen oh. table you can download all 110 episodes of this, plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website at batlisted.fm and uh, contact us on Twitter or on Facebook. And you can also now show your love more directly uh, by supporting our Patreon at Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. We have done this really to keep backlisted going. Um, we love doing the shows and we want to keep the quality high. We don't want to have to depend on intrusive paid-for adverts where I talk at length about trousers, and I'm sorry to those of you who enjoyed the trouser adverts. <laughs> but they are uh, over. They are, they they are, are gone, over. man. Let those go. Uh, honestly, just a small gesture of financial support will help us uh, do that. All patrons get to hear Backlisted episodes early, and for the price of two fancy coffees, the lock listener level gets you two whole extra podcasts a month where we... Uh, Andy, Nikki, and I go off piste and we talk about music, film, television, and art as well as books. I mean, what I'd like to do is keep Matt and uh, Nikita hostage and we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll record a three hour Bob Dylan podcast. But, uh, <laughs> sad, sadly, that's, that's Maybe we should. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, if, there was, if there was ever the time for it, it's now, right? <laughs> anyway, listen, we've been amazed by the support so far. So, as promised, here are a few names, the first few names of our recklessly generous master storyteller supporters. Um, they get the lot and our undying gratitude, neither cheap nor easy to come by. It's the Honourable Guild of Master Storytellers, and we have uh, Ian Walker, Clara Abrahams, Grant Samphia, Melissa Gray, Chris Jones, Stuart Hewer, Jen Shenton and John Dennis. Thank you. And then we've got, do I add some lock listeners from the Roll Call of Honour here? I think you could definitely do that, Andy. Yeah. Should we sing them in in a kind of no, no, in a Bob no. Dylan way? Let's not. Let's not. Do, what in a Dylan way? Please do. That was Gordon Baird. He gave us some money. There was Brian Kirkland. He was pretty funny. Too. <laughs> um, Claire Jost, Stephen Musgrave, thank you. Eleanor Robson, Gary Keane, Jackie Patience, thank you very much. Alex Tobin, Martiella, Roseanne Spencer, Jan Postmar, Ben Meadows. Thank you all. Martin Sellers, Cliff Morris, Catherine Wright, Alison Palmer, Jonathan Wilson, Simon Harper, Josh, Louise Strecker. And finally, we'd like to thank Lorraine Rogerson and Alex Preston, as mentioned by Matt Thorne earlier on this Indeed. podcast. 
a, a format. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. Thanks I very think much. Listen to it. I'll go with Bill. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, he's a very nice man. We'll be back. Uh, keep listening. We'll be back in a fortnight, or indeed sooner, if you sign up. Yay! You can choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.